Dennis Kinlaw was the president of Asbury College for 18 years, leading the school through the 1970 revival. In 1983, he founded the Francis Asbury Society to promote the message of scriptural holiness. We hope you enjoy this message from Dr. Kinlaw. Tishbite, who was of the settlers of Gilead, said unto Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, liveth before whom I stand, there shall not be dew nor rain these years, but according to my word. And the word of the Lord came unto him, saying, Get thee hence, and turn thee eastward, and hide thyself by the brook Cherith, that is before the Jordan. And it shall be that thou shalt drink of the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed thee there. So he went and did according unto the word of the Lord. For he went and dwelt where the brook Cherith that is before the Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and flesh in the morning, and bread and flesh in the evening, and he drank of the brook. And it came to pass after a while that the brook dried up, because there was no rain in the land. And the word of the Lord came unto him, saying, Arise, get thee to Zarephath, which belongeth to Zidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to sustain thee. So he arose and went to Zarephath, and when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, Fetch me, I pray thee, a little water in a vessel that I may drink. And as she was going to fetch it, he called to her and said, Bring me, I pray thee, a morsel of bread in thy hand. And she said, As the Lord thy God liveth, I have not a cake, only a handful of meal in the jar, and a little oil in the cruise. And behold, I am gathering two sticks, that I may go in and dress it for me and my son, that we may eat it and die. And Elijah said unto her, Fear not, go and do as thou hast said, but make me thereof a little cake first, and bring it forth unto me, and afterward make for thee and for thy son. For thus saith the Lord, the God of Israel, the jar of meal shall not be spent, neither shall the cruse of oil fail, until the day that the Lord sendeth rain upon the land. And she went and did according to the saying of Elijah, and she and he and her house did eat many days. The jar of meal was not spent, neither did the cruise of oil fail according to the word of the Lord which he spoke by Elijah. And it came to pass after these things that the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, fell sick, and his sickness was so sore that there was no breath left in him. And she said unto Elijah, What have I to do with thee, O thou man of God? Art thou come unto me to bring my sin to remembrance and to slay my son? And he said unto her, Give me thy son. And he took him out of her bosom and carried him up into the upper chamber where he abode and laid him upon his own bed. And he cried unto the Lord and said, O Lord my God, Hast thou also brought evil upon the widow with whom I sojourned by slaying her son? And he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried unto the Lord and said, 
O Lord my God, I pray thee, let this child's soul come back into him. And the Lord hearkened unto the voice of Elijah, and the soul of the child came back into him, and he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down out of the upper chamber into the house, and delivered him unto his mother. And Elijah said, See, thy son liveth. And the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that thou art a man of God, and that the word of the Lord in thy mouth is true. There are many marvelous things about human beings, but one of them is that in every single person that you will ever meet, there is a desire to be important. It's there, it's God-given, and there's no way you can wipe it out. That's the reason for some of our strange customs in our society, I am sure. I took Elsie out the other night to the Lexington Mall. We were going to eat in the magic pan. And as I let her out at the door of the Hilton there, if that's the name of it, Hyatt, whatever it is, I never remember the name, a fellow in a green jacket and a delightful uniform stepped up and opened the door and let us out. And I took a second look, and it was an Asbury boy. And so after I had parked my car, I came back and said to him, How long have you been doing this? And he said, Two weeks. And I said, uh, how, how is it? He said, I love it. And I said, Oh, why do you love it? He said, I'm getting to know all the important people of Lexington. He said, I've even learned how to get football tickets for the Kentucky Wildcats when they're none for sale. But you go around the world and you will find that if you put uniforms on men, they'll usually stand straighter. That's the reason for these absurd rituals that we have connected with degrees, too. I can't feature how you would ever explain to a person from outer space what happened here the first weekend in June when properly decorous, sane, and intelligent people who are on the faculty of Asbury College put on some of these ridiculously ancient gowns with these colorful things around their necks choking them and these absurd hats and sit here on display for commencement while we hand you a sheepskin of all things. Blessed be the sheep. But there is a symbolism in that diploma, and it's not to be scoffed at, though I may joke a little about it. But why is it that most people want diplomas? They feel that degrees are a means to significance and to counting. And that's very valid. You want to count. Don't you ever let anybody tell you that that's wrong. God made you in his image, and he didn't make you for small stuff. He made you for eternal stuff, and he made you to count. I'd like to talk this morning for the minutes that we have about a man whose life did count, and perhaps something of why it counted and how God dealt with a man who really counted. The man I want to talk about is the one about whom we read a few moments ago. He's known as Elijah the Tishbite. Now, there's not a great deal that we know about him personally, 
You'll read the scripture in vain to get many details about his personal life, but you will find that his public life had a profound influence on the course of history. If you studied the Old Testament with the Old Testament professors at Asbury College, one of the things that you will find is that the day in which he lived was the day when the faith of Israel and the knowledge of God almost perished from the earth. It had come so close to perishing that it, that this man could say, I'm the last one left. All of the other prophets of God have been killed, and all of the people who believed are now gone, and I'm the last one left. Because he had a king in Israel who was an apostate in heart, and he married a wife who was an absolute pagan, She had never had enough faith to become an apostate, and she was antithetical to everything that Israel really stood for. Her name was Jezebel, and you know that. And Ahab and Jezebel set up a syncretic religious philosophy, much like some of what we speak of today as pluralism, where they said that we will bring in all the faith into Israel, and we will be people of the world. And so, she brought her Sidonian religion with her and the worship of the Baals, and named her children after Yahweh, the God of Israel, but developed a policy that ultimately led to the extermination of all the prophets of Israel, except for Elijah and a few who one of whom one of her servants concealed in a cave in two caves, one fifty in one cave and fifty in another. But God took this man Elijah and enabled him to challenge the false prophets of the day, the syncretism of the day, and to challenge it in such a way that the testimony to the Lord God remained in Israel and could not be exterminated. If you will go through the rest of the scripture, you will find that his shadow continued long after he died, or after he was carried to heaven, because he did not die. Malachi, that last little book in the Old Testament, predicts that before the coming of the Messiah, God will send Elijah to turn men's hearts to truth. And when John the Baptist, that great, great prophet, almost without equal, When he came and the multitudes came to hear him, the religious leadership said, Who are you? Are you Elijah? Come to us. And when Jesus came along and Jesus could turn to his disciples and say, Whom do men say that I am? They said, Many say that you are Elijah. You will remember that on the Mount of Transfiguration, after Jesus had disclosed his identity fully to his disciples and they had recognized it, you will remember that Jesus took Peter, James, and John up on a mountain and there was transfigured before them, and suddenly to the consternation of his three disciples, they found that there were not four, but there were six, and the two who had joined them were Moses and Elijah. Now, I think that's enough to say that his credentials were acceptable, that this was no ordinary man. He was a giant of giants. He was a history shaper whom God gave one of the significant roles in human history. You 
you say, well, now, I'm sure I could never be an Elijah. I've read those stories, and he had courage that makes my blood turn to water. I feel a little that way. But if you will read in the Scripture, you will find that it's, that the Scripture seems to want us to believe that Elijah was an ordinary person just like you and me. Because in the book of James, when James is talking about prayer and men of prayer, he says in the King James that Elijah was a man subject to like passions, just as we are. He had the same problems we have. If you take the New English, the New International Version translation, you will find that it says that he was a man just like us. Now, if you read the story carefully, you will find, though it doesn't tell us a great deal about him, that it tells us enough to know that he had some feet of clay too, and that he did have some of our human faltering characteristics. One thing I like about him is that you know so little about him, which makes me figure that he was Mr. Nobody himself. We don't even know who his father was, nor his mother, nor his family. And my own conclusion from that is that his father and his mother and his family were not significant enough to be mentioned. And you know, I think there is something delightful in the heart of God and something that causes him to enjoy taking the person that nobody else expected to be used and lifting him up and making him his voice and his man for his day. You know, we have our patterns as to what it takes to be a success. If you come from the right families and if you get the right training and if you go to the right universities and if you have the right degrees and if you have the right friends and if you have the right contacts and if you have the right breaks, you can count two. But apparently, he didn't go to the right school, and didn't come from the right family, and didn't have the right friends, and surely didn't have the right contacts from a human point of view, and didn't have the right credentials, but God took him. And I think that was one of the reasons that God took him. He enjoys taking the one that no one else would expect and making him significant. One of the greatest sermons I ever heard was preached by a man by the name of John Church on that text in Judges about Samson. Out of the eater came forth meat, and out of the strong came forth sweetness. And when he took his text, I thought, this is going to be horrible. And I listened to him as he set the background of that text, and I thought, there's nothing in that text. We're in for dry bones today that are not capable of resurrection. But soon he got to the crux of his, of his thrust, and that was this. Out of the eater, you don't expect meat. You expect the lion to consume meat, not to provide it. And out of the strong, you don't expect sweetness. You expect courage and power. Out of the weaker, that you expect the sweetness. And his sermon was, the God of the unexpected. Now, I wish I had time this morning and had done my homework well enough that I could go through the Old Testament and show you that that is a deliberate biblical pattern. You take the normal routine pattern that people expect God to follow, and usually he upsets it. Jacob and Esau, the firstborn, was supposed to be the significant one, and God chose the secondborn and did it for a purpose. And so if you think today life has dealt you, it's a horrible language in his auditorium. I, maybe I better stop at that point. 
But if you feel that the breaks have not come your way, and you are not among the privileged, just let me say, it's folk like you that God may want to take and use in our day and in our generation. So his genealogy is certainly not impressive, and his credentials, worldly-wise, are certainly not impressive, but more than that, he was a fellow that when life did come turn sour on him, could suffer from self-pity just like you and me. You remember this dramatic event here where he walks into the king's court and stares the king in the face, and I don't know how he got his appointment. But he looks at the king and says, it isn't going to rain until I say so. That's presumption, isn't it? But anyway, he said, it isn't going to rain until I say so, and immediately disappeared so that the king could not find him to kill him. And then he found that God took ravens and a brook to care for his physical needs until the brook dried up because it didn't rain. And then God took him across. He went, traveled across the country and came to a pagan kingdom, and there in that pagan kingdom found a pagan who would, who would take care of him. And the way she fed him was with a jar of oil that was miraculous. You could empty it today and it'd be full in the morning. You could empty it next day and it'd be full the next day. It was self-filling or God-filling. And a barrel of meal that she could empty it today and there'd be meal in the morning for breakfast. It didn't stop. Miraculously kept. Then the day came when he comes and challenges the prophets of Baal. Mount Carmel, and fire comes down from heaven and consumes the sacrifice. And if you've never read that story, you ought to read it. It's one of the dramatic moments in human history. So he saw all of that kind of drama. He was a man who knew what miracle was. But then after he had seen fire come from heaven and rain come to end the famine at his prayer, a drought at his prayer, then it was that he had to flee for his life, and he found himself hiding in a cave, and first of all under a tree, and in the wilderness, traveled, left every man. He was alone in the wilderness, and there he sat. And God said, what are you doing here? And he said, I'm, I'm, I'm having a time pitying myself. And he said, look at me. He said, I really wish you'd let me die, because if you don't kill me, Jezebel is, and I just don't want her killing me. I'd rather just drop over dead than have her get her hands on me and kill me. I would appreciate it if you just like let me go like my father's and die. And God says to him, yep, I understand, but I'm not through with you yet. Now, I like the fact that the scripture always tells us both sides of a person's character, and even in Elijah who was taken up by chariots of fire and missed the experience of death. The scripture is careful to include some of the human elements with whom the likes of me and the likes of you can identify. Commonplace. That doesn't mean that he was not prepared, because God does not use unprepared people. God may use the person that you do not think is particularly prepared, but you can count on it that in God's all-seeing eye and all-knowing heart, the man that he uses is one whom he has prepared. It's not an accident that he uses whom he does. 
I like the anonymity of this man's life before he appeared on the stage of history. And I like the fact that the scripture does not tell us what he was doing during those years prior to his appearance and shaking that long bony finger in the face of, uh, he had to have a long bony finger. You couldn't be a prophet like that without having a long bony finger to shake in a king's face and make a king tremble. And so he shook it. And But what had happened to him in those years before? Somewhere in obscurity, he had come to know God. And you know, I sometimes think that's the only place you ever come to know him. I noticed it was on the backside of a desert that Moses got to know him. And I noticed it was tending sheep and picking sycamore fruit that Amos got to know him and to recognize his voice. And I think that's one of the reasons that in the places where most people look for leadership, God's leadership often does not come. Because if the life pace is too fast and there's too much competition, God gets pushed to the margin. But somewhere in the obscurity and the anonymity of Elijah's earlier life, he had an opportunity to get to know God to get to know him enough that he could hear him when he spoke, and to get into that relationship with God where God trusted him enough that God would speak to him and God would give him unique missions. I don't care what else you learn at Asbury, I do care. I hope you learn a whale of a lot of chemistry and a whale of a lot of biology and history and psychology and... uh, Uh, whatever it is that that professor in front of your classroom represents in terms of an academic discipline, you're going to need all of that that you can get. But there needs to be one aspect. And that's the reason the heart of our program is not a a lecture, but the heart of our program is a worship program. You need to know God. Because your life will never ultimately don't know him. If you don't know him enough that you can recognize his voice, if you don't know him enough that you know when he speaks to you, if you don't know him enough that when he speaks you can say, yes, I better go do that. Even if it means the risk of your life the way it did with Elijah. Now, he knew him enough that he knew how to pray. And what does it mean to know how to pray? It simply means to know God. Knew how to trust him. And he knew how to obey him. And I remember that David, when he had his big moment, said, but I've had smaller moments when I was able to trust him beforehand, so yes, I can trust him now. And if you never learn to trust him in the small things, you will be totally unprepared if the big occasion ever comes. You know, I think sometimes that God never lets the big occasion come to the person who's never taken care of the little occasion. He had walked with God enough that he could discern where the heart of the battle was. You know the thing that disturbs me about a lot of us? And let me put myself in that category. There are many of us that spend our lives fighting battles that are of marginal significance. 
there are many of us who just don't fight any battles at all. We're as far in the back as we can get, behind the line, and not doing much in terms of logistics for the front line either. But if there is anything you want to ask God to do, it is to give you the discernment as to where your life will count the most. And don't fight battles that don't count. You don't have time to find the ones that do. And so he was not off on the margin. He came right to the core and right to the central question. Ask God to give you the discernment to know what are the crucial issues. Because there is so much of our Christian energy that is spent on things that are of marginal importance. Now, when he was prepared, it's interesting that circumstances backed him up. Now, I use circumstances deliberately. I started to say life supported him, just the nature of life. But it's interesting. His life and his ministry meshed with a magnificent, that's a horrible word, isn't it, but a magnificent drought. I'll have to go back and check on what magnificent means, but uh, if it means to make great, which I think it does, it was an incredibly great drought that lasted for years. And so his ministry keyed in at the beginning, and his ministry keyed in at the end of that, and his life supported what he said. Now that's extremely significant to me, because if you're going to have to speak to our day the word of God, whether you're a public school teacher or a mother, or whether you're in the halls of Congress, or whether you're a missionary overseas, or no matter, or you're a lawyer in the midst of American juridical life, it really doesn't matter where you are, but if you are to speak the word of God, if it is to count, the people who listen to you are going to have to say, you know, that fits with the reality that I experience. I wish I could illustrate that or spend the time on it or thrust it. But I'll tell you, if you are in touch with God, your witness and your word will be confirmed by life. When he said there will be no rain, there was. When he said to the king, it's going to rain and the sky was totally clear. Before the king got home, he was drenched. And if you obey God, you will find that life supports. Now, if life itself isn't enough, if there isn't enough natural support, then he's capable of giving supernatural support. Because in the same way that in the processes of nature, the drought ran with his ministry, when there was no other way to keep him, there was a barrel that had miracle in it, and there was a jar of oil that had miracle in it. And if you're in his will and in his way, you'll find that too. It won't happen every day. I was registering, I was 38 years of age, registering as a graduate student at Brandeis University. Five children. Scared, just as scared as any freshman was here last week or this week. You don't get over those things. 
You just learn to live with them a little more and live them out. And I walked into that sort of alien territory to me like Wilmore was to you or Asbury was to some of you a few days ago. And the secretary to the dean of the graduate school looked at me and said, Mr. Kinlaw, did you get the letter, your letter from the dean? And I said, no, I didn't receive any letter from the dean. And he said, uh, he said, oh, I think you better see him then before you register. And uh, the way she said it, I thought judgment day had come. And it had. So I walked into the dean's office, Madison Avenue Jew, and he looked at me and said, uh, did you get my letter? And I said, no. He said, that's too bad. The way he said it, I knew it was doomed. So he said, I'd better read it to you. So he pulled out of his file a letter which he had written to me that was one of the most uh, unhappy letters I would have ever received in my life if I'd ever gotten it. And if I'd ever gotten it, I would have never shown up at Brandeis University to register, and I wouldn't be standing here this morning, and I wouldn't be living in Wilmore today. He said, you mean you didn't get this letter? I said, no. And to my knowledge, I never have gotten it since. Now, what God did with it, I don't know. Really don't care a great deal. But I was trying to follow him. He protects it. God does, if you're here. Now, that doesn't mean that he will deliver you from all your problems. If you could have talked to Elijah while he was sitting in that horrible desert, side of a brook, uh, drinking its muddy water, and uh, eating what the ravens brought to him, you would have said, this is not uh, the Asbury cafeteria, is it? And he would have said, it surely isn't. I've had a whale of a lot better diet than this other place. And if you had been with him when he was tramping back across that country, going from one end to the other to escape the king's men who were out to kill him, you would have said, Elijah, gets rough obeying God, doesn't it? And if you had found him when he was under that juniper tree, wallowing in self-pity, you would have said, Elijah, how'd you get here? He would say, I got here by being obedient to God. And you would have said, get rough obeying Yahweh, doesn't it? He would have said, yes, he does. He doesn't protect you from the rough places. It's those things that season the soul and prepare you for the crisis moment. Because if you never had any rough places, you'd never be able to be a man or a woman of God. You notice the conclusion? The woman said, Now I know that you are a man of God, and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. You know what our society needs? It needs men and it needs women that are men and women of God that a world can look at and say, we know that you are a person of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. Can we bow our heads together?